Welcome to Freedom Matters Today. I'm Michael J. Sutton, and this is Episode 6 of Freedom from Fascism, a Christian response to mass formation psychosis. It's an exciting place to be. According to the statistics, those who reach their sixth episode are in the top 60% of podcasts because by now 40% have given up. We hope to bring you a new episode every week. That is our commitment to you, the listener. Our focus is the nature of freedom, from a Christian perspective. I hope that this podcast meets a need in your life. I hope it is asking the right questions. I hope it is challenging you in the right way. I hope that you continue to listen each week and tell your friends. If you're tuning in from America or Europe or Asia, welcome. I hope to communicate effectively and respectfully across cultural boundaries. I spent a long time living in Asia and my hope is that at some point our work at Freedom Matters today will be translated into other languages such as Mandarin or Japanese. This podcast series is exploring freedom from a Christian perspective, which for me means understanding the importance of a personal, individual relationship with God as the source of true freedom. Freedom Matters today is non-partisan and non-sectarian, which means I want to strip away the distractions, abstractions and layers of confusion that are often placed in front of anyone wanting to know about God. This first series, Freedom from Fascism, is trying to expose Christian fascism, which is a stumbling block to many Christians who struggle in their local church gathering and a closed door to many people who know little or nothing about God because Christian fascism is so deeply offensive it's enough to turn people off Christianity for life. The church is often its own worst enemy, and that's the problem. I will not defend the church, nor myself, But I do stand up for Jesus Christ, who is my Lord and my Saviour. I also blog each day, and this blog is published on our company website, freedommatterstoday.com. You can either read the blog directly on the website or subscribe, and you will receive the blog to your inbox. These blogs are based on the original podcast, but they are edited and include additional information, reflections and thoughts. How can we escape Christian fascism in the church. We have seen that there is a growing disease in the West, and I am not talking about COVID. It is fascism. It is a nasty and virulent disease that has been emboldened by COVID hysteria, ignited by the war on terror, and flourishing due to the war in Ukraine. Fascism is not, however, confined to the state or people in power. It has a religious equivalent. Christian fascism or religious fascism is a temptation for all Christians everywhere, especially in nations that pretend to be Christian, like Australia or America. No nation can be a Christian nation. It's simply not possible. That an entire nation can have one religion is a myth invented by nominal Christians who can't tell the difference between faith or religion or Christ and culture. A Christian nation is a form of slavery the kind of world Jesus came to deliver us from. In the absence of genuine belief, those who do not believe are forced to believe or excluded. And that is not Christianity. Jesus does not force anyone to believe. Only the church does that. Christian fascists hate freedom more than secular fascists do. 
They despise the Saviour because he is a threat to them, their power and their money. They are afraid people will read the Bible for themselves. If people do, they will realise that they have been lied to by the church and this hypnotic power over them, this spiritual oppression, will be broken forever. Instead of cowering before the priest or pastor in slavish fear, anxiety, full of guilt and shame, they will stand boldly before God, thanks to the work of Jesus Christ in true freedom, confidence and hope. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. As a result, this truth is a person, not a set of rules, regulations, traditions or rituals. In a post-democratic world bent on reviving a new public morality with the church in tow, Jesus once again is on a collision course with what is left of the Western Church. These days, most churches see Jesus as a footnote to faith, a symbol or an icon. In many old public buildings in Australia, there is a dusty, faded portrait of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen of Australia. It was painted when she was a young woman. In America, it is common in some states for people to hang their flag on a pole in front of their house, but many do not bring it in, inside, at the end of the day. Instead, it hangs through the seasons, exposed to the weather. Both the portrait and the flag are symbols of loyalty, but portraits need to be cared for and flags need to be respected. The attitude to the portrait and the flag reflect in the same way the attitude of many Christians to Jesus. Jesus is but a portrait and a flag that they do not care for in their life. Many go further, however, and identify Christianity as a synonym for Western values. It is not. It never was. The West cannot hide any more behind the cross or the Bible. This has been a problem for Christianity since Britain sent out missionaries in the 19th century. There were great exceptions, such as William Carey in India and Hudson Taylor to China, but most Protestant missionaries could not avoid the temptation to link Christianity with Western cultural values, ideals and class structures. The Church promoted Christianity as a form of national imperialism. Just look at the global Anglican Church. Anglican is the new word for Church of England or in America, the Episcopalians. But just look at the global Anglican church gatherings, all in their antiquated robes, their cassocks and crooks, promoting an English version of a denomination whose persecution led to the flourishing of most Protestant denominations we know today. Why do they wear those clothes and use a prayer book written by the same people who might have seen Shakespeare perform at the Globe Theatre? These liturgical styles costumes and values are out of touch with the experiences of people today. Most mission work that did not take the culture of the nations into account ended in ruin and disaster. There have been some efforts to distance the gospel from Western values in the last 30 years or so, but that effort has largely stalled. The war on terror has seen a revival of Western triumphalism, and this is a great danger for the future of Christianity. Missionaries and churches from the West cannot help themselves, and nominals who run the churches at home don't see any difference. What is the reason for a church to be in the name of a Western denomination? 
if a house or home church is a suitable alternative. In some ways, Western Christianity is the greatest obstacle to the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ to the non-Western world. There are over 3 billion people in Asia and most think Christianity is a Western creation. Most believe that Christians promote American values. Many Christians in Asia do because even though they are Chinese or Japanese or Indonesian, their Christianity has a Western face with Western values, Western institutions and a Western Jesus. But Jesus was a Jew. The New Testament was written in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew. Not one word of the Bible was written in English. Christian fascists in the West elevate religion, rules, tradition, guilt and shame, all of which prevent you from encountering God. They stand at the door to the kingdom of God and block it. Many nominals run the culture war in the West and point away from the Bible to their pet ideology or twist a few Bible verses to justify their political agenda. Nominal Christians point to traditions, rituals and buildings, but behind this facade are political objectives philosophies or ideologies. Most of the old churches are deeply racist. Many of them are explicitly anti-Semitic, despite the horrors of the Holocaust and generations of enlightened secular education. Today we are exposing the false heart of Christian fascism and show how you may escape religion and find faith. It's painful to hear, but necessary. Christian fascism is evil, because through the rituals of the Mass or the Sermon, churches engage in mass delusion and indoctrination. In the social context, this delusion can be overpowering. The social emotions people feel in group gatherings can lead people to close their Bibles and cease their private prayers because they are convinced the rituals bring them close to God. But the rituals are communal exercises. So what people believe is the work of God is simply the social aspect, the psychological aspect of doing something together. As a result, these rituals cause spiritual and psychological oppression and social exclusion. Only God can deliver us from the evils of Christian fascism. The path out of darkness is from religion to faith. It is achieved by leaving the culture war, state churches, public morality and returning to Jesus Christ. The starting point is, do, is to do the most radical thing possible, the most subversive thing, the most rebellious thing, and that is simply opening the Bible. You can easily buy a Bible online. Don't use the King James Bible. Its language is out of date. Choose a contemporary version like the New International Version or ESV, the English Standard Version. Read the Bible in your own language or your first language. It's better that way, the language uh, you are most familiar with. And do not start on page one, because the Bible is not a book like a novel. It is a collection of documents organized in historical fashion. Go to the New Testament and choose one of the four Gospels to read, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. Set aside a time at a suitable hour each day and read a chapter or a dozen verses or so. Think about what the passage is talking about the context, where the passage fits. Think about the words, the concepts and images. Reflect upon what the passage is saying to you on that day, what words or phrases or ideas speak to you. 
If you think about the passage, if you reflect upon it yourself, ponder it yourself, take notes and remember what you have read, then these verses are God speaking to you on that day. And this is your time with God, which is special, exclusive and personal. Let me tell you a secret. Most ministers do not write their own sermons or homilies. They copy from other sources or talk without notes. But those who do write their own sermons have engaged in the same process I am suggesting you employ for your own study of the Bible. The difference is that the sermon you may hear on Sunday, if the priest has written it themselves, is the product of the priest or the pastor or the minister's own personal journey or discovery or their insights. They are simply sharing with you on Sunday something you can do yourself. It is a method anyone can use because all Christians have the Spirit and God has no favourites. He treats all people impartially. Listening to someone talk about their understanding of God is perfectly fine. The problem is that in church services there is a disconnect. God, through the Holy Spirit, speaks to people in different ways. What he is saying to your priest may be different from what he is saying to you. God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. The Bible calls itself the living word, sharper than a sword. It divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and desires of the heart. There is nothing stopping you from reading, studying and reflecting upon the word of God. As for prayer, it is simply talking to God, sharing with God your day, your thoughts, your needs. If you care about someone, you will talk with them. Why not talk with God? God answers not in words that we hear, but through his word and through answers to prayer that work through our life. Experts say that people who diet, if they really wish to change, must adopt a new lifestyle. Make reading the Bible and daily prayer at the heart of your life as part of your new lifestyle. The Bible is not a textbook or a manual, but it is God speaking to us. And what he said to people living 2,000 years ago is as relevant now as it was then. Because people are the same and God is the same. My message is simple. Give up the culture war. Rediscover who Jesus is and follow him. Resist the temptation to talk about politics. Talk about Jesus Christ instead. Read what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Go straight to the source, the Bible. Ask God for wisdom as you read. Ask him for understanding, faith and insight. Those Christians who try to promote Christianity through the culture war will make a ruin of their faith. God only promises what he promises. And what he does not promise, no prayer or self-effort can guarantee. You may indeed find yourself fighting against God. If you make politics or the culture war the vehicle for your faith, I can say with absolute certainty, my friend, you will fail. Christians who place their hope in politics or the culture war are like those who build sandcastles on the beach and the tide is coming in. Christians do not need a political theology if they have Christ and follow him. The reason for this is simple. We have a saviour and lord who relates to us in a personal theology and therefore a relational theology. 
this personal and relational theology is, in other words, the fact that Jesus wants to know us personally. We come to know God through an active decision to believe, trust and obey. It has nothing to do with baptism when we were children. Baptism does not bring us into the kingdom of God. How can a little water change the human heart? This, like the ritual of the Mass, is pure hocus-pocus. Because God can know us through Christ in whom he trusts, in whom we trust, we can relate to one another in a way that was not possible before. Because we have the Spirit, for the first time we can genuinely love others, express genuine kindness and find true forgiveness. Because everything we do will be in step with the Spirit who dwells within us. This is impossible without the Spirit. And the Spirit points people to know Jesus Christ who was sent by the Father. The name of Jesus is the Jewish name Joshua, which means God saves, and Jesus lived this out being Emmanuel, or God with us. If God was with us, and we can be with God, what else do we need? God saves us through the work of Jesus on the cross, dying for sin, saving us from sin, guilt, shame, death and fear. The saving work of God sustains us through life as we are united to Christ through faith. The Spirit of God dwells within us, and we are taught by God all that we need as we remember what Christ taught and as we read the Bible and pray. My friend, societies come and go. Nations rise and fall. Do you really think you can stop God and his purposes? If you believe your nation will live forever, forever read Jeremiah. The only earthly nation God has had special care over was ancient Israel. But he allowed Israel to fall to Babylon in 587 BC. Do not place your confidence in nations, but in God. Nations are a drop of water in the bucket in the morning rain. Who remembers what empires lie under the desert sands? If God wants to destroy America, who are you to stop him? Which nations rise and fall are his decision. America is under no special protection from God. Let me say that again for those of you who don't understand that. America is under no special protection from God. No nation is. If you're a politician, governing is your business, leading your nation is your business, and those problems are your problems, not mine. Who knows the future but God? History is full of accidents and surprises and unpredictable things. And yet our lives are driven by the latest topic the media throws at us, or the latest ruling, or the latest trend. Who cares? Let God deal with it. God works his purposes through all things, and he is in control. Surely that is enough. We are not responsible for the sins of others. We do not need to have an opinion on every single topic. Why do we need to spend every waking moment thinking about politics and the culture war? God brings a transformed heart through faith in Christ, and a changed heart produces a changed life. We all need to spend more time thinking, reading and praying about the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, when you have exhausted Jesus in terms of who he is, his work, his person, his life, and the consequences of these for our person, our identity, our work and our life, then sure, create your political theology and fight your culture war. But I tell you this, once you meet Jesus Christ, your life will never be the same. 
Once you find Jesus, or Jesus finds you, you cannot stop talking about him, or celebrating him, or worshipping him. And God directs you in your life to what is important, relationships, responsibilities and duties, so that you might be productive in this world. Most who have a robust political theology have a superficial theology of God. They approach the Bible in a selective fashion. They cut out the bits and pieces they don't like. As a result, they end up with a very slender volume. Many priests, ministers and pastors make fun of the Bible, poke fun at the life of Jesus and say that it's all fake. If it is fake, why are they still priests and bishops? I tell you why. They like to be called father in the street. They like the position, the money, what people think of them. They crave the power. They like wearing the best clothes, eating nice food and devouring the houses of widows. I mentioned Jeremiah before. The book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament is one of my favourite books, but it's a very long book. Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke to kings about God and what God wanted. He knew Jerusalem was going to fall long before it did. He preached national repentance to no avail. He pleaded with the kings to see sense and accept reality. Jerusalem fell to Babylon and the leaders were exiled. The main advice Jeremiah gave the exile sent to Babylon was to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Whatever faults that generation had, and they had many, they listened to Jeremiah and in 70 years returned with great wealth to rebuild the wall and then later begin work on the temple. Likewise, in the New Testament, Paul taught the early believers to, as far as possible, live at peace with others and avoid crime. Jesus doesn't have anything to say about people and politics. He makes no religious test for office. He does not say that a Christian must be a conservative or a liberal or a socialist. I don't know about you, but I am sick to death of hearing Christians linking Jesus Christ with a social conservative political agenda. Stop it. It is a sin. Look at the men Jesus recruited. He was a true leader. If you aspire to lead, then follow Christ. He recruited the worst possible candidates. One of them was called Simon the Zealot, which meant he was one of the dreaded assassins who hunted Romans and stabbed them in the back. He was a terrorist, and yet Christ called him to be a disciple. Then there was Matthew, who worked for the Romans collecting taxes. Hardly a godly position, but Jesus called him as well. Can you imagine the tensions between Matthew, um, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot, and their conversations? Jesus also recruited the traitor Judas Iscariot, whom Jesus knew would betray him. Jesus had at least two secret disciples who were among the men who condemned him to death, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. How did they vote? Probably for Jesus, but we don't know. Paul talks of converts in the house of Herod and in the house of Caesar, and yet that is all he does. He does not condemn them for being in those parties or political coalitions, nor should we. The culture war is a distraction from the person and work of Jesus Christ, and Christians who seek to advance the gospel through political means are not following the path of Christ. Jesus did not seek an earthly kingdom, 
and he turned his back on politics. Christian fascism is the embryo that is born from the egg, that is, the culture war. It leads to the melding of state and church, and at its heart is nominal religion, people without faith in Christ, who are committed to the rules, regulations, traditions, building and history of their church and their denomination. Christian fascism is an albatross around the neck of any good minister, priest or pastor trying to advance the gospel. The culture war produces a political theology that removes biblical theology so that the church's agenda aligns with the agenda of the nominals, who seek to capture the church and weaponize it for their political purposes. Let me tell you another secret. Many genuine pastors, ministers and priests hate the denominations within which they are forced to work, as well as the ridiculous traditions, all for the sake of the gospel. I believe they're making a mistake. Why should they stay at all? What benefit can be gained if one step forward is met with two steps back? The lives to be saved far outweigh the lives in the church that's dead, stuck in the traditions of the past. Jesus told his disciples that when faced with opposition, they were to wipe the dust from their sandals and move on. That's the biblical model. Let the dead bury the dead. If your church is overrun by nominal Christians who oppose everything you do, leave and take the good news of Jesus Christ to others. Those who stay must reconcile themselves with that problem and work it out for themselves, but be honest in admitting to themselves the real reasons why they put up with it. What I am saying also is is not that Christians should work for the state or the military. People are free to choose any legitimate profession in society if they do not engage in crime, and working for the government or the military is perfectly legitimate as far as God is concerned. The problem is when Christians use politics, their job or career, as a substitute for their faith. Faith is personal, politics is not. Politics is about the community, many of whom are not Christians. We have our faith, and we meet someone who does not agree with us. The Christian talks, reasons, persuades, debates, and shows through their life what it means to be a Christian. We do not break fellowship with a person over these differences. Sadly, many Christians live insular lives, their entire life taking place at the church building and activities associated with that building. A Christian is not someone who uses the state to promote their values or punish others for not behaving in a way we do not like. Christianity is about a person's active faith in God. It is not about the behaviour of other people in society. That is how so many Christians lose their way these days and see the culture war as a vehicle for promoting God's kingdom on earth. You will fail. God nowhere promises the rise of a Christian state or a Christian society or Christian politics. Whatever God does not promise, you cannot claim. And I'm sorry, but you will fail. History has shown that too. All efforts to build God's kingdom on earth through political means have been complete failures. Christians who are in the culture war, hear this. You will most certainly fail. I also said two weeks ago that God does not take sides in war. The God of the heavens does not work for America, nor does Jesus Christ work for Putin. But God knows all about war, and he knows the cost of war, 
and what it means for those men and women who fight in war. God honours all who fight in war. In the same way, he honours all who take up their chosen profession and seek to be the best they can be in it. There is no dishonour in any gainful employment, nor in following orders, or in soldiering. Being a soldier is a legitimate occupation. As far as God is concerned, serving one's nation is an honourable profession. As far as war is concerned, the conduct of war, how wars are fought, God knows every thought of those on a battlefield. He knows all their fears and despairs. He knows the doubts and the anger. He knows their sense of hopelessness in ways that no one who has fought can possibly understand. God has seen war, and he fights war, and there is no greater warrior than God. God is not opposed to war, and war is not always a sin. God also knows where all the fallen lay, when they fell and how, and he knows all their names. Nations may forget, people may forget the battles and the wars and the suffering, and they move on, but God does not forget. He remembers all, even when all are forgotten and are shadows of the past and names on tombs. God also knows the thoughts and intentions of those men and women who sent them into battle and why, and where they sit in their places of comfort, often far away from danger and harm, in their plush chairs and nice apartments, wearing their clothes and living their comfortable lives. God knows their names too. Freedom that God brings is freedom from fascism and tyranny, freedom from fear and despair, freedom from sin and death, freedom from guilt and shame, and freedom from past and prejudice. True freedom is found in understanding what Jesus said in that verse, or saying of his, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14.6 Freedom is from God. It does not come from the state. The difference between counterfeit freedom bestowed by people in power and freedom bestowed by God is that people only bestow freedom on an interim basis or a conditional basis, and the freedom given by God is unconditional and permanent. God does not and will not withdraw the freedom he bestows. Why ask for freedom if it can be taken away? That's what people do. But God never withdraws his favour once given. Why do I use the term Christian fascism? Other terms are used for Christian fascism, such as Christian nationalism, ultra-nationalism, nativism, far-right, alt-right or neo-Nazi. Most of these terms are problematic. Fascism is a political system. It is a form of democracy where the people have chosen to transfer power from themselves to a person or a group of people. Fascism comes from democracy. In fact, it's a product of democracy or the lack of faith elites have in democracy. In secular fascism, in every case, the national church of that nation fully supported the rise of fascism. How did that happen? Well, in the beginning, the early church was equal. Everyone was the same. They all had the spirit according to the gifts, and the church resisted hierarchy, power, and money. National churches evolved when the state took over Christianity. Suddenly, politics brought popes, priests, patriarchs, and archbishops. 
None of these are biblical terms or titles. Not even the word priest is in the New Testament to describe a Christian leader. Church power was transferred from people to this fascist leadership, from the people who had the spirit to those with political power. This was fascism. This was the model. The Western Christian Church was the template for mass hypnosis for centuries. The nightmare of the Church was the Church state that flourished in Europe for a thousand years. This was, in my view, the original form of Christian fascism, the model for fascism in the West. In most churches, people have already transferred authority away from themselves to the person at the top. In the Bible, Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope or the Bishop or even the priest or your pastor. In the Bible, everyone is a priest, everyone has the Holy Spirit, and God sees everyone in the same way. Churches get rid of the Bible as soon as possible and they create a hierarchy of those in charge and those who obey. Many Christians do this naturally. The confidence they place in their priest is often idolatry. They have tried to extinguish the Holy Spirit who dwells in them and who wants them to read their Bible and pray. Fascists in the church always criticize personal Bible study and personal prayer. That is, the, that is one way to discover their identity. Anyone in church who encourages you not to read your Bible is from the devil. National churches despise the expression of the Spirit and the movement of the Spirit, which is basically that God speaks to all of us through his Spirit as we read the Bible, listen to God, and follow Jesus. That helps to explain why national churches loved to murder dissenters and nonconformists for centuries because they listened to God and not to the church. Look at the story of Joan of Arc. Much of her story is lost to history, but she and many other mystics were murdered by the church because she believed God spoke to her personally, not through the Pope and his edicts, and so she had to die. Fascism is a sickness of the state arising from a dysfunctional democracy. Nazi Germany was only one type of fascism. Fascism, in a traditional sense, began with Italy and the rise to power from democracy of Mussolini. Other versions of fascism include, included Portugal and Spain. These are examples of traditional fascism. Fascism also exists in the Ukraine and has for many years. Ironically and rather tragically, the West is supporting the uh, Ukrainian government and in that government are men and women who hate Jews and who support fascism. This is a fact and has been known for some time. Ukraine also has a long history of anti-Semitism. Look at what happened in the Second World War. Classic fascism is often anti-Semitic. Not always, but often anti-Semitic. It exists around a cult leader, it's warlike, and has a reimagined history and identity. But no democracy is immune from fascism, and democracies often get sick. And so fascism continues to grow like a sterile flower in a field of wilting roses. Many scholars... Both Marxists and Libertarians view America as a fascist state, especially after 9-11, both in its prosecution of the war on terror and the rise of the military state. Fascism is also arguably present due to COVID hysteria and the suspension of human rights across the West, and much of the nightmare of COVID lives under the shadow of the 1930s in Europe. In addition, many saw in Donald Trump the revival of fascism with his Make America Great Again rhetoric. 
Every nation, however, has had a different experience. Some have had strong state churches or religious traditions, such as Greece, Russia, England, Germany, Sweden, Italy and Japan. Some nations have not been around for long enough to have a strong church-state tradition, such as Australia, New Zealand and Canada. America also has no national church. This patronage of fascism by the churches is a product of their Christian heritage, which was the world's greatest flowering of fascism. They were the source of all true fascism, and they have honed their craft and their methods of controlling political power and violence. Like the tiger who tasted blood and cannot get enough of gazelles, Christian churches that tasted the sword found it very hard to put down and enjoyed using it on innocent people for centuries. Christians in these fascist churches enjoyed killing, and they killed a lot of people. For centuries, the Church of England ruled with violence against other faiths, such as Roman Catholics and other Protestants who refused to use the Book of Common Prayer. In the beginning, the Church of England murdered their opponents or imprisoned them. How do you think America was formed? The Pilgrim Fathers arrived escaping religious tyranny at the hands of the Church of England. So did the American Puritans. When the Church of England stopped murdering people for having different religions, the prosecution of those outside the national faith was done through the secular courts. Many institutions, such as universities, were forced or willingly excluded anyone not a member of the Church of England. One could attend university only if one was a member of the Church of England. In the prison colony of New South Wales, there was even a priest who got a reputation for whipping people who refused to listen to him. That nightmare, the hell of a world run by the Church, is the world of the past. And no form of political totalitarianism could compete with the nightmare that was the state church. It stubbornly refused to die. Not even Garibaldi could defeat the church. But you probably don't know about Garibaldi, do you? The church has been very effective at whitewashing history. As European and Japanese democracy crumbled in the 1920s and 1930s, state churches supported all forms of tyranny, Hitler, the Japanese imperialists, Mussolini, Franco, the list goes on. Google it. They did so for two reasons. First, these churches did not support democracy because the new politics had seen their power removed or reduced. Second, they had a similar view to organising society, the use of the sword, power over others, and a belief that people needed to be controlled through political means. But as we saw last week, Jesus Christ never sought political power. God does not approve of Christians seeking it, for he knows what is in their hearts. They don't have the courage of their convictions to talk or persuade and accept rejection. Instead, they delight in forcing belief, either through education or conformity or threats of violence. Education produces apathy, conformity produces resentment, and threats of violence provoke revolution. Normally in the West, if a nation did not have a national church, they would create one, a church of the establishment, and a school system where morality could be taught and the children of the elites would attend. This national religion became a form of passport. Church membership was a loyalty test for nationalism. Englishmen were Church of England. Germans were Lutherans. 
and Greeks were Greek Orthodox. Christian fascism, therefore, is the political theology of those in churches aligned to the state. It is based on cynical nostalgia and sincere hope for a return to the past. The culture war, COVID hysteria, the war in the Ukraine, these are all crises for Christian fascists to piggyback their way back into places of authority. They are these days all very excited. Take the war in Ukraine, for example. It has elevated the position and power of both the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church. War has been very good for them and their power. Christian fascists do not hope to proclaim the gospel. The last thing they want is for people to enjoy real spiritual freedom. What they crave is power and money. There are several motivations for those who have aligned with Christian fascism. First, many truly believe the past was better. Second, many in the church do not see the church as the place for the proclamation of the gospel. They see the church as the place to instill moral order, moral values and especially public morality. For them, church is not about our relationship with God, but our relationship with others. They say, the way we love God is loving others. This, my friends, is religious atheism. What they're saying is they don't believe in God. And they believe a marriage between the church and the state is the definition of a true church and its function in society is one that is shaped by their view of the nation. Third, Christian fascists believe loyalty to the state is the highest Christian virtue. COVID hysteria was a perfect opportunity for Christian fascists to prove their loyalty to the state. It was a litmus test. They eagerly lapped up vaccine passports and fully supported the demonization of the unvaccinated. This new class of people, the unvaccinated, were ostracized, blamed, criticized and condemned. Christian fascists gave their assent when the nation was weaponized against this new class. Blame for the lockdowns, blame for the deaths, the so-called pandemic of the unvaccinated. We don't hear that anymore. Fourth, Christian fascists hate Jesus Christ, and they're doing the opposite of what I'm trying to do. I want to place Jesus Christ at the centre of faith. They want him removed entirely. The exclusive claims of Jesus are always a threat to their power. Christian fascists want to stop churches talking about a new life in Christ, or Bible study, or Christian freedom. For them, all that matters is loyalty to the state. Christian fascists will only tolerate a religion of civic obedience, loyalty to the state, and a new public morality so church doors can be kept open. Australian churches are lining up to advance this new public morality. I will tell you the future of these churches. In these churches, the future will have no forgiveness, no Bible, no prayer, only rigid severity, selective morality and self-righteousness. In my whole life, I have never seen in any nation such self-righteousness as I have in recent days. So many of those stupid evangelicals who supported COVID passports did not get the memo, but they will soon. Their church leaders want to cleanse the Church of Christ, remove the gospel, and replace it with the new public morality. 
Just wait and see. Finally, and fifthly, Christian fascists agree with the holiness crusades of the nation. They want to purge the nation of its enemies in search of a nation of better people, people whom the government doesn't like. First we were told to hate Muslims, and then hate Trump, then hate the unvaccinated, and now hate Putin. Who will be the next target? The last thing they want you to do is open your Bible and read it, or, God forbid, listen to Jesus. What did COVID hysteria do to the church, and who was behind it all? How can we discover fake Christians and Christian fascists? What is the correct way of looking at the history of the church? Why will Christian fascism fail? If Jesus did not come to bring a moral code, why did he come? Jesus did not come to bring a moral code, but to point to himself as the way, the truth and the life. The only way to escape the culture war and to repudiate Christian fascism is to rediscover Jesus Christ, reconsider his claim, and that is what we will do next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please tell your friends, and if you attend a gathering of Christians, tell them too. As I've said, most people will never go to church, and that's fine. I want to introduce them to Jesus Christ and true freedom, and that is my goal. Please subscribe to our daily blog and tell your friends about us. Freedom matters today, because you matter to God.